It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Many of us live on Zoom these days, right? Which is kind of maddening for a whole bunch of reasons, not least of which is the technology kind of sucks. I mean, I don't understand why in the age of the pandemic and with all the things that we can do, we can land a rover on Mars. It's not a better like conference chatting software. But apparently men who are on all these Zoom calls for business or whatever uh, have become increasingly bothered. And according to the New York Post, a growing number of dudes who are increasingly horrified by their appearance on countless Zoom calls are now turning to a secret. Concealer for men. In other words, they're wearing makeup. Uh, one guy is in, interviewed here says it's fantastic. He spent $18 on a product called Define Layer Skin Fix, which he ordered online after choosing from five different shades. People have already started saying, I look younger in my videos. Uh, I don't see why this is news. I wear makeup all the time in front of the camera. But not everybody, of course, is in the TV business. So apparently, the CVS pharmacy chain, which is also doing uh, coronavirus vaccines in many states, uh, has has added to 2,000 of its nearly 10,000 outlets a uh, concealer product, the slogan of which is, nothing wrong with handsome. All right. So America's men, or some of them, dudes, uh, are, uh, are doing what women have done all along, which is make your skin look good. Okay. Uh, according to uh, CNN, the Department of Defense Inspector General is about to issue a report, and the network got an advanced copy, about Ronnie Jackson. Remember him? Ronnie Jackson was the White House physician under President Trump. And he was the guy who would come out and say, you know, man, Trump is in such good health. He could live to be 200. He is just incredible, and he's got the stamina. You know, he just he just was so uh, uh, over the top, so fulsome in praising the president's health. So according to this IG report, Ronnie Jackson, when he was running the White House Medical Office, uh, made sexual and denigrating comments about a female subordinate, uh, violated the policy for getting drunk or at least drinking alcohol on a presidential trip, uh, took Ambien, uh, while at work, that prompted concern from some of his colleagues. And this is all outlined in the report, which is about to be released. So is this going to hurt Ronnie Jackson? Well, he's a member of Congress now uh, after his rather mixed tenure. Remember that Trump had nominated him to be the VA secretary, uh, but that nomination was withdrawn. Some of this stuff leaked out. Some of these concerns is before there was a full inspector general investigation. Anyway, he went... Uh, Back to Texas, ran for the House, won, and he's already brushing this off as saying this is just resurrecting old allegations, and uh, he rejects any allegation that I consumed alcohol while on duty. All right, let's move along here to story number one. Neera Tandon is out as the potential director of the Office of Management and Budget. And to me, the only mystery to this entire thing is why the White House waited so long, why the White House spent uh, precious political capital trying to get Neera Tandon confirmed to OMB. First of all, the average person doesn't care who runs OMB. Who was Donald Trump's last OMB director? Who was any OMB director uh, under um, Barack Obama, for example? I mean, it tends to be a kind of a green eye shade job. Sometimes they have more power than others. Thinking of David Stockman during the uh, Ronald Reagan's first term. And I'm not saying it's not an important job, but in terms of the politics of it, you know, it was always an odd choice. And I'm not jumping on the denigrate near attendant bandwagon, but 
Biden's whole theme in the campaign and the early weeks as president has been uh, setting a tone, healing the country, unity, bipartisanship. And then he picks Neeratan, who was, you know, longtime Hillary Clinton confidant, who ran the liberal Center for American Progress. And she had, you know, a thousand tweets she had to delete um, saying all these terrible things, not just about Republicans, but also about some Democrats like Bernie Sanders. But in any event, once it became evident that she was not going to make it, uh, and that's the exact precise moment was when Democratic Senator Joe Manchin said, I'm not voting for her. Remember, it's a 50-50 Senate with Kamala breaking the tie. So if you lose one Democratic senator, you've got to pick up a Republican vote. And so the White House spent all this time, and Ron Klain, the chief of staff, was on television talking up near a tenant, saying, we're not going to give up. We're going to pursue this fight. Anybody who's been around Washington, and maybe Klain knew this too, but maybe this was just about showing that they would fight the fight, that they would not walk away from a nominee at a sign of trouble, knowing full well in the end they would not get near a tenant confirmed. And by the way, Biden says she'll get another White House job. So, you know, she'll be fine. OMB will get a perfectly good nominee. The budget office will be fine. But the way, the kabuki theater that went on here, so a lot of people were ticked off about this because Neera Tandon is of Indian American descent, so she would have been the first woman of color to lead OMB. Uh, And she's really the first presidential nominee in any administration to be sunk by Twitter. Uh, Biden put out a statement saying, I have the utmost respect for her record of accomplishment, her experience, and her counsel. I look forward to having her serve in a role in my administration. So uh, just to remind people, I mean, just among the tweets that she sent out, uh, she called Susan Collins, moderate Republican who might have voted for her, the worst and pathetic, said vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. She compared Mitch McConnell to Voldemort, of the Harry Potter series, in case you're not familiar, and called him Moscow Mitch. And then it turned out she had something nasty to say about uh, Lisa Murkowski as well. Lisa Murkowski was thought to be the last Republican senator. She's actually not a Republican anymore. She's an independent who won her last race on the independent line in Alaska. Um, And she went out and she met all, all these senators. She met with Murkowski. And finally... The way it's being spun by the White House is that Neera Tandon went to the White House and said, you know, I don't have a path forward. This is becoming a distraction, so let me withdraw. And Biden is going along. Now, what's odd is that Murkowski met with Neera Tandon uh, earlier this week, and some of the stories in the papers say, well, uh, Lisa Murkowski made clear she was not going to vote for Neera Tandon, and that was it. It was game over, and the White House had no choice but to fold its cards. But uh, Murkowski says uh, the White House never asked her flatly, would you vote for Lisa Murkowski? And she did not tell the White House that she would absolutely not vote for Lisa Murkowski. And she says she was never asked. But, you know, it's all a wink and a nod of these things, you know. Uh, Lisa Murkowski certainly didn't make clear that she would vote uh, for Tandon. And as time goes on, you know, it reaches a point where it gets kind of ridiculous. A lot of people thought there'd be a deal made. Oh, you have some energy projects in Alaska you would like funded? Well, we'll just see what we can do about that. So the White House is signaling through sources that Murkowski wouldn't go along. Murkowski is saying on the record, you know, she never made a final decision. And you know who else didn't make a final decision? Bernie, because Bernie Sanders was also attacked repeatedly by Neera Tandon, you know, Hillary Acolyte. And he never said, because he wanted, you know, if it came down to he was the last vote, I don't know, 
He might have done Biden a favor and gone along, or he might, he might have pulled the plug on the thing. Anyway, that is over. And it leads me to an interesting kind of related story in the Washington Post about life in a 50-50 Senate. So here's the lead. Uh, late last month, or late in January, excuse me, Democratic Senator Pat Leahy fell ill and he had to be hospitalized for a little while. The next day, Democratic Senator Mark Warner went into quarantine for a few days after coming into close contact with someone who tested positive for COVID-19. Now, both senators returned to work quickly, but their absence served as a stark reminder just how perilous the Democratic majority is in a 50-50 Senate. This is particularly true with this effort to push through uh, the $1.9 trillion pandemic aid package because there are no votes to spare. The White House needs every one of the 50 Democratic senators not just to support the package, but to show up and vote so that Kamala Harris can then break the tie. So uh, Chuck Schumer can't have any absences. Uh, as the Post story put it, if one Democrat has a fever, breaks an ankle, or takes a bad fall, the legislative process would come to a halt until all 50 Democratic senators could show up. And Democrats are fully aware uh, that a death could end their majority at any moment. Here's a quote from uh, Majority Whip Dick Durbin. We are one heartbeat away, and I remind myself every day, I'm not putting off anything until June that I can do today. Uh, in other words, look, something can go wrong. Durbin's 76. Uh, he's one of 18 members of the Democratic caucus who are at least 70 years old. And six of those come from states, this is fascinating, with laws allowing Republican governors to appoint a GOP successor. There are certain laws, certain states that have laws saying you got to appoint somebody to the same party, which seems fair to me. You know, in other words, the vote is voted, the person dies, but that's not the case in most states. Um, so they are praying for good health. And look, the Obama administration went through a version of this in 2010 when Ted Kennedy died, and they still hadn't quite pushed through using, you know, the reconciliation party line uh, procedure to push through Obamacare, and then they came up with a workaround after Senator Kennedy's death, and then that election was won by Scott Brown, a Republican. So you talk about being precariously balanced. It also would only take one defection. I don't see that happening. But back in 2001, when the Republicans and George W. Bush had just been elected, barely controlled the Senate, uh, a guy whose name is kind of passed into history now, but Vermont Senator Jim Jeffords, he was a moderate Republican, he flipped and went to the Democratic Party. And that gave the Democrats control of the Senate for the next year and a half, the remainder of Bush's uh, first two years until the 2002 elections, and then the Republicans took over again. That was huge, and there were a lot of recriminations against the Bush White House for not paying closer attention to Jim Jeffords and making sure he stayed within the GOP fold. All right, moving on now to story number two. Uh, and this is the big news, and this is huge. And, you know, it's funny. Not funny in the slap-your-knee sense, but interesting. Just on yesterday's podcast, I was talking about there being mixed messaging from the Biden White House about the availability of the vaccines. So um, Biden originally said that by the end of July, every American who wants a COVID vaccine will be able to get one. Then he kind of moved it up to May or April, actually, that got shot down. Then he went back to the end of July. And late yesterday, the President of the United States said that any American who wants a COVID vaccine will be able to get one 
by the end of May. So that's less than three months from now. So if that prediction is true, you know, leave aside the mixed messaging. I mean, who's going to care if at the end of May, uh, any American who wants to get vaccinated will be able to get it? You know, all the early stumbling around, mixing of messages is not going to matter. President Biden will get credit. And look, President Trump, as I've said before, deserves some credit for getting Operation Warp Speed off the ground, for getting the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines underway. Um, Biden can take at least partial credit for getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, approved by the FDA. And what he also has done, this gave them the confidence to actually lay out the more aggressive timeline, was that Merck, the pharmaceutical giant that's a rival of J&J, has agreed now to work with Johnson & Johnson to produce more doses more quickly and to get them out uh, to the states and the cities and the counties. So Biden says, as a consequence of the stepped-up process that I ordered, uh, this country will have enough vaccine supply as a target for every adult in America by the end of May. That's progress, important progress, he said. And that is true. Um, so what's great about this is, you know, it's kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Now, there are stumbling blocks that remain. First of all, you know, maybe the production won't go as smoothly as hoped. Second of all, the vaccine program now is a mess. It's an absolute friggin' mess. In state after state, in city after city, you have all these multiple registration sites. And it's hard to register, or maybe you don't meet the criteria, or you register, or your appointment gets canceled. It's certainly hard for many senior citizens, many of whom are not that fluent on the internet. I mean, there are people who are calling up pharmacies, even though they're not in the categories mostly uh, frontline workers and people over 65 were eligible to get the vaccine saying, you know, do you have any extra? Can I come by? Do I actually show up in the hopes of getting a leftover vaccine? Um, it's been confusing. Uh, I know of just so many examples of people, you know, having to spend hours and hours just trying to snag an appointment. Now, the main problem is a lack of available doses. So if the Biden announcements fix that problem, then things will get better. But the subsequent, the, the auxiliary problem is that many of the states and the cities and the counties have just have horrible websites, uh, make it very hard to register. Um, the criteria are confusing. They ask you to re-register time and again. And so that's going to have to be fixed to actually get the shots into people's arms. And then you have the whole... Uh, portion of the population that is reluctant to get this vaccine. That's why you had Dolly Parton, who donated a million dollars to one of these vaccines, getting it yesterday, making a, a media event out of it. Because a lot of people, if a lot of people don't get it just because they are afraid of it, or they think it might not work, or they think they could get sick from getting a vaccine, that would slow down America's march toward what's called herd immunity. But at least, you know, with these latest developments, it does look like Sooner rather than later, we will be able to reach uh, where the country needs to be. But now you have this situation in Texas, and this has been very controversial. The Republican governor there, Greg Abbott, saying yesterday he is ending all coronavirus restrictions, all of them, uh, next week. And he's dropping the statewide mask mandate. And every business can reopen with no capacity limits. I just announced... Texas is hoping 100% everything in all caps, Governor Abbott tweeted. Uh, now, he's totally at odds, and Mississippi, I guess, is doing something very similar. He's totally at odds with federal health officials who are saying to the governors, please don't ease the restrictions now because we're making so much progress. Wait at least a couple more months till more people have been vaccinated until um, the, the rate continues to come down. Because here's the thing. 
while the numbers have greatly improved, let me just check these numbers here for you in my research packet, which is basically me going on the web every morning. Um, and by the way, in Texas, a lot of people not liking this, a lot of Democrats not liking this, a lot of Democratic mayors are saying that Abbott shouldn't be doing this. Uh, for example, um, some of the businesses there, including Target and Macy's, are saying they're going to continue to require customers and employees to wear masks. GM and Toyota said their employees in the state of Texas will also be required to wear masks, so it might not be um, as sweeping as Governor Abbott would hope. Uh, what Abbott is doing is extraordinarily dangerous, says the Democratic state chairman, Gilberto Hinojosa. Um, and you got to think there's some politics involved because Texas in the first round was one of the states to be very slow to adopt uh, these uh, mandates and restrictions. They now have adopted them. Things are looking good. But how good are they? Listen, the nation as a whole is averaging 67 new cases every single day. Now, that's an improvement from the surge in January, but it's more than in the spring and summer waves of coronavirus. Also, in Texas alone, just in the one state, uh, the state's been averaging 7,600 new cases a day, 7,600 Texans developing or testing positive for coronavirus every single day. And um, Texas is among the top 10 states in the spread of coronavirus across the grand, you know, one of our biggest states, obviously. So it seems to me to be a little premature. It seems to me a little bit of, you know, Republican governor wanting a national profile, wanting to take credit. He thinks it'll be safe. He says, look, the pandemic's still here, but I feel confident that we can do this, blah, blah, blah. So that has made this a political issue once again, because obviously many Democrats and the Biden administration are saying that this is premature. Story number three is kind of a nice segue here. And this has to do with Biden, who understands the political vulnerability here, pushing harder now to get more and more schools to reopen. And when Donald Trump gave his CPAC speech on Sunday, he did two things. One, he said he's not getting enough credit for the vaccine rollout. And he mentioned that Biden had misspoken and said that there was no vaccines when he took office. And obviously, it's not true. We know it's not true because Joe Biden and Kamala Harris got vaccines that had been developed at the tail end of the Trump administration. Secondly, Trump said, I call on Joe Biden to reopen the schools. Well, Donald Trump knows because he couldn't do it that a president doesn't have that power. But what powers does a president have? Well, there's a nice political piece here saying that Joe Biden is tapping a federal agency to help vaccinate teachers and child care workers because that's going to be crucial as well. And he's even thinking of appointing a school reopening czar because he understands that if he gets the blame, even though you know there's limited things that he can do, if he gets the blame for all these schools that still don't have in-person instruction, that's a great issue for the Republicans. The new education secretary, Miguel Cardona, he was just confirmed, um, you see the yesterday or the day before. Um, he's been talking up, he's going to launch today, actually. He's going to go to elementary schools that have successfully reopened. He's going to take the first lady, Jill Biden. They're going to mount this media blitz, an administration-wide push to reopen schools. Uh, Biden has set a 100-day deadline for children to return to the classroom. But again, some children have already returned to the classrooms, uh, maybe more of them in private schools, a lot of public school systems in big cities. Uh, New York, Washington have either just reopened or are on the verge of reopening in the next few days. But Biden also says he needs the Senate to quickly pass, and the Senate's going to start debating this today, 
the 1.9 trillion COVID relief package because there's a lot of money in there. I think it's 250 billion or maybe it's more to help schools reopen, you know, with uh, better air filtration systems and uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, So there's been a lot of muddled messaging on this. I think parents want schools to reopen. Many teachers unions are questioning whether they can reopen safely. And just so happens that Cardona wrote yesterday in an op-ed in USA Today that the Education Department will convene a national summit this month on school reopening. So Biden is trying to get out in front of this, and that makes sense. Uh, it's a major national problem. Uh, the long-term effects, I mean, I know this just from various kids I know, of kids, you know, as young as the age of six or seven, having to spend hours and hours a day on Zoom and staring at a screen, I mean, and not seeing uh, friends. It's awful. It's very injurious to their mental health, to their education, and I hope we can make some progress on this. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. Let's go to number four. Uh, the Andrew Cuomo situation. Well, there's been a turnaround in the media, as I mentioned yesterday, after many media outlets either ignored or totally downplayed the initial sexual harassment allegations against the governor of New York. Uh, It's getting a lot more coverage. Um, And Cuomo clearly is in a weakened position. New York Times lead says that with allegations of unsettling behavior toward women spilling into the public eye, Governor Andrew Cuomo spent yesterday fending off calls for his resignation. With few voluble defenders in a moment of unparalleled weakness in his decade-long tenure in Albany. Signs of his diminished sway were everywhere. So, Cuomo's been governor for 10 years. He is a governor who is very aggressive, and this is now sort of coming back to bite him, because he's pissed off a lot of people, including fellow Democrats. At the same time, he had these enhanced uh, emergency powers to combat the pandemic, It looks like uh, the legislature is in the process of taking those away. And just in terms of political clout, he hasn't been seen in public uh, since one day last week. Uh, And so, you know, he's hiding out because, you know, if he holds a briefing, what are reporters going to ask about? They're going to want to ask about the nursing home scandal? Yeah, to some extent. And they want to ask about COVID-19 a little bit, but they want to ask him, you know, about these investigations. And will you cooperate? And what about this latest allegation for a woman who says that you uh, put her hand, your hand on her back at a wedding. You didn't even know this woman. And then you held, uh, you've probably seen the pictures, hold, held her face in your two hands and asked if you could kiss her. Isn't this part of your problem? What do you have to say about this disturbing behavior? So he's lying low. Um, increasing sense of discomfort among donors. Now, this is if Cuomo runs next year. He's up for re-election for a fourth term in 2022. Uh, His father, Mario Cuomo, was defeated in running for a fourth term. It's the third term curse. And I wasn't so sure before Cuomo was going to run again, but now I really think it's less likely. Um, One active Democratic donor telling the Times there's a growing instinct to hedge their bets because they pick up the papers and they turn on TV and they see that Cuomo is in deep, deep trouble. However, the Times says, and this story is written out of Albany and they know the politics there, the idea that he could be impeached or forced to resign uh, appears pretty remote for now. Impeachment requires mass defections by Democrats in both the state assembly and the state senate. Uh, the Dems control both chambers in Albany. The leaders of both chambers, however, uh, are striking a deal to uh, limit Cuomo's powers. Um, one Democratic uh, congresswoman, Kathleen Rice from Long Island, is calling for Cuomo to resign. 
And uh, Chuck Schumer, Kirsten Gillibrand are saying they support an independent investigation. So that's that's that provides cover for them. They don't want to appear to be Cuomo, uh, giving Cuomo a pass after going on and on and about about all the sexual harassment and assault allegations against Donald Trump, against Brett Kavanaugh, and others. So now they say, well, I believe that every woman should be heard, but uh, for we, we should have a full and fair and thorough investigation, and Cuomo must cooperate. Uh, and meanwhile, the question is, will there be uh, more women coming forward, especially now that the state attorney general is going to authorize a legal task force to start taking testimony that might encourage other women to go forward. If that happens and that becomes public, then Cuomo's position gets weakened even more. Number five, I did a report yesterday for Fox's special report on the whole Dr. Seuss controversy. Yesterday was the late author's birthday. It is also Read Across America Day. This kind of all got started when... President Biden taking a proclamation from the Education Department for the first time, because Trump didn't do this and Obama didn't do this, didn't mention any Seuss books in this recommendation that goes out for Read Across America Day from the federal government. And Jen Psaki was asked about this, and she kind of dodged it and said, well, you know, we think it's important that children of all kinds, meaning diversity, you know, get to see themselves in children's books. And then came the bombshell from Seuss Publishing. I mean, this is the company. You know, there's a great debate right now, and I address this in my piece, which is online, about whether this is cancel culture, whether now the beloved Dr. Seuss, and look, I'm like every other parent in America. I read, growing up, I read Cat in the Hat and Green Eggs and Ham, and um, I read them to my kids. I, I know some of these books by heart. I do not like it, Sam, I am. I mean, in this piece, I had Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs um, in one of his filibusters. I showed uh, footage of... Um, Melania Trump and Michelle Obama reading Oh, the Things You Can See, another of the most famous Seuss books, um, uh, to school kids. But it was Seuss Publishing that decided to pull the plug on six of the titles, including And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street and others. And clearly they were trying to get out front and protect the legacy of the late Theodore Seuss Geisel. Um, and so I don't think I can quite call this cancel culture when it's the Seuss company that is saying, you know, in light of today's standards, these, these are wrong and hurtful images. I mean, one of them, for example, from the If I Ran the Zoo book, one of the less prominent books, you know, has a white guy, a white male, you know, carrying a gun, being carried on the shoulders of three Asians. And the caption says these are three Asians whose eyes, they wear their eyes at a slant. I mean, horrible racist stuff. So, you know, I can't defend that. Uh, now, it turns out that when he was in his 20s, in the 1920s, excuse me, when he was a college student at Dartmouth, uh, Geisel did dabble in racist stereotypes. He drew black boxers as gorillas. He drew Jews with big noses. But he later became a civil rights supporter, and he later uh, wrote the book The Sneetches. I talked about this. I never thought I would be talking on the air about The Sneetches or Green Eggs and Ham. But The Sneetches is a parable against racism. If you're not familiar with the book, these creatures called The Sneetches, they, they're two kinds. Some have uh, stars on their bellies and some don't. And the ones that do discriminate at those that don't. And so the ones that don't then get the stars uh, put on and then, they, and then they become part of the in-group, but then the others get the stars taken off. It's clearly about blacks and whites in a way that kids could, could be communicating to kids. So, of course, we have all these things going on, as I mentioned in the piece. Even the critics of Curious George, 
because, oh, the theme is of a white man going to Africa to bring back a monkey. Now, look, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is, is it fair to judge by today's woke culture and today's woke standards, artists who produce something, who are products of earlier generations, who did things that, uh, that, we would, that we are absolutely unacceptable today, but they lived in more prejudiced times when you could get away with almost all the characters being white, when you could make fun of Asians, when you could um, disparage blacks. I'm not saying we should accept that today, but we're going to go back and whitewash, and maybe that's not the right term, every book, going back to Tom Sawyer, you know, great art works of literature. I just think some of this seems like crazy town. It's getting a little out of hand. I'm not saying that this is cancel culture because the Seuss Publishing Company has a right to make this decision. But it does seem to me, and maybe some of these scenes could just be cut out or redrawn by somebody else, but it does seem to me that we're, if we're in a national tizzy, and, you know, you get conservatives complaining about cancel culture and liberals saying this is crazy. For the national tizzy about Dr. Seuss, something's gone off track because we've got a lot more important things to worry about, folks. Thank you all for listening. I hope you stay safe. You can subscribe on Apple iTunes or lots of other places. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.